Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. At the Secret Life of Cookies, we want to bring you into the kitchen for conversation and, of course, baked goods. This week, I had the pleasure of baking a layer cake alongside former U.S. District Attorney, Distinguished Professor of Law, and MSNBC legal analyst, Joyce Vance. Thank you for joining us in the kitchen. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'll be back at the end of the episode to let you know more about the recipe we were working on. Welcome, Joyce Vance. Thank you so much for coming uh, in a sense, into my kitchen as close as I'm allowed to have anybody in my kitchen, um, not because of a court order, but because of the pandemic. I, I just want to be clear about that. Um, and uh, <laughs> you, as a former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, a distinguished professor, not just a regular professor, a distinguished professor at the University of Alabama Law School, and of course, um, MSNBC legal analyst and lover of cake and chickens, which I think makes you a very well-rounded human. In fact, I used eggs from my chickens um, to make our cake for today. They're silky, so they lay tiny little um, eggs. So I used eight of them instead of four. But that was my They're question. here with us in the kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> because I, I, we actually chose a cake that uses four eggs. And I thought, how appropriate for you, because you can just go out and grab them. And so, you, and a lot of people don't pay attention when they, it says like four large eggs there's different volume to different eggs. So I'm glad you, your little silky. Yeah. They're um, adorable little tiny eggs. Are they white eggs? The so next? it's interesting um, and we're not sure who's who, but somebody's laying actually a pale brown egg and everybody else is laying white eggs. But if, an interesting thing about chickens is they lay the same color egg for their entire life. They don't oh. change colors. I, a friend of mine just gave me some of her eggs and there were light blue ones and there were some like very pale green ones, sort of mental institution green, but, mm -hmm. um, and uh, different sizes. And so uh, you, how long have you had chickens? So we have pandemic chickens. My youngest kid, my <laughs> 17 year old, you know, how 17 year olds do said in early March, gee, I'd like to have chickens. Yeah. Um, and because I felt so guilty that he was doing school from home, you know, for two weeks at that point in time, um, I uh, resurfaced uh, the bottom of our backyard and built a coop and got chickens. And now a year in, we've got 10 of them running around uh, like little crazy people. Well, I mean, there are a lot of very important things to discuss, but my daughter, who um, also was 17 in March, um, asked for the same thing. And I did not provide such a thing because I believed um, that chickens are disease-ridden animals and she couldn't have them. And um, so these are things that you told yourself, of course. <laughs> I, I told her that, um, and that's why we couldn't have them and that they take a lot to take care of. Now, is any of this true? It's completely not true. They're super healthy. <laughs> we have them sort of in, in a good-sized space. We have hawks. 
So their run is covered and they only get to go out in free range when somebody's outside or when the dogs are out with them, which is like all the time anyhow. Mm -hmm. um, but they've been super healthy so far. We, they have a good organic diet. They probably eat better than we do. Um, and they've been pretty low maintenance. The 17 year old wired an automatic door so he didn't have to go let him out at six in the morning. And that was really the highest maintenance part of their existence. That is brilliant though. Okay, so uh, there are things to consider though. Um, hopefully- I can you know, walk you through this. You should do this. <laughs> okay. So my daughter has plenty of other people's chickens to take care of at the moment. So, uh, but you know, she's one who brings home all these interesting facts about like chicken diseases, like bumblefoot, which I think is hilarious. Yeah. yeah. They do get weird diseases. We've been really lucky. I think because ours have a ton of space. I think commercially, you know, raised chickens are disease prone, but if they're just out running around eating lavender and rosemary bushes, they're much better off. I should, I'd like to be doing that to be fair. Um, it's a would, good life. Do they have names? <laughs> have you named your They chickens? do. So they all have names and they have very distinct personalities. And we have one that likes to jump up on your shoulder. And there are a couple that like to sit on your lap and they make a noise that's pretty close to purring. So, oh. you know, they're, they're good. I do office hours sometimes outside with my chickens. So you go out there and read and like talk to your students while the chickens. I'll do Zoom. Yeah, I'll do office hours out there and the students just drop in on Zoom and, you know, occasionally a chicken pops in and it's all good. It sounds fantastic. The animals Zoom bombing has been my favorite part of, <laughs> I, I, I also uh, teach and I, the, I'm very happy when people's animals could crawl across the screen, you know, couldn't have that in class. So it's much better. Fingers crossed that none of my cats are going to humiliate me by jumping up on my kitchen counter, which of course they never do normally. No, there are no cats on the counters in my never, household. There was not a cat just about two inches away from this uh, frosting yeah. seconds ago. Yeah. Not at all. I have to start. I think it would be probably best if I started baking foods that just match the fur of my animals. <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a warning to anybody who eats my food. Um, my husband just says it's protein. It's protein. Additional exactly. protein. <laughs> Although I have taken to wondering whether or not um, humans can get hairballs as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> all I have is animals that just like, as they walk by you, explode for off of themselves. Yeah. Um, we are making a hairless cake today, I hope. Um, <laughs> a very homey cake, a really traditional, if there are any British people listening, it's a very traditional British cake. You can find it at any British tea shop, which is a coffee walnut sponge, as they say in England, it's a sponge cake. But you and I have Americanized it, right? You have Alabamaized it with- Alabamaized it, yeah. <laughs> because you had pecans just falling out of your refrigerator you know I did I when I saw the recipe that you sent I thought "Ooh, the one thing that I have is pecans aplenty and I decided to um, change the game a little bit I'd altered it from walnuts to pecans and today I'm using hazelnuts for a more sort of Austrian flair which is sort of what comes naturally in my family um, so I, I'm just gonna I think um, I'm gonna start icing my cake so we can get to the best part, which will be attacking this. Um, we have a praline topping that goes with it that if anybody at home can hear, that's me tapping my knife against the hardened caramel that has nuts in it. Let me ask you a question. Are you gonna spend um, you and your husband's date night tonight listening to Mike Lindell's um, new movie that came out today? 
You know, I don't think that the pillow <laughs> guy is um, on our radar screen for this evening. My husband has developed this love for um, South Korean detective shows. <gasps> I think the some best. of them involve zombies and he's watching three of them simultaneously. And I'm having a hard time keeping track. In, in the serious one, I keep asking where the zombies are. <laughs> and this is, I think that's just the kind of thing we have like gotten to, you know, we've all watched like Lupin and find call your agent and all the other shows we're supposed to have watched. And now it's come to South, South Korean, Korean, uh, South Korean zombie dramas. They're like really this. good though. Actually, I, I confess I've had a little bit more time to watch TV lately and, and they've been really fun. I, I've actually followed South Korean um, sort of dramas for a long time. My father used to like to watch them and we'd sit down and sort of, you know, it's like, it's as close to traveling as I'm getting anyway. Yeah, that's the truth. In England, just to pop this in here, they don't ice the sides of the cake. So if you want to be like them, you can really go crazy and put a lot of frosting in the middle, which I think is what I am going to do. So I always run out of frosting. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I just cannot um, do it. And so I loved when I saw that this was just a crumb coat on the sides. That's my favorite absolutely. cake. Exactly. And it's absolutely the trendiest thing you can have going. Um, because it's so like chic right now. People are doing their wedding cakes like that. And a crumb coat for any of you people out there in TV land, it's just a thin like bit of icing around the sides, just enough to sort of not let you see the seam in the middle. So Mike Lindell has this uh, uh, great movie, three hours long. I mean, we have the time to watch it, I guess. And apparently it says that um, apparently the election was a fraud. No and kidding. No kidding. And um, if, if the, he says that if people don't pick up on this film, if this film doesn't take, um, the rapture will come. So uh, I don't know, maybe- So we'll I'm not Christian, it. but I thought that that was good. Isn't the rapture something that people look forward to or maybe I just don't understand Christian theology? No, I thought it was something that you look forward to. I mean, if hmm. you're Christian, the rest of us are not going to enjoy oh, the okay. rapture. That's the problem. So- Got it. That's just something to bear in mind. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you yourself, have a very long history of, um, and, and strong, long and strong history of um, prosecuting public corruption cases. Is that I true? Do. Yes. And um, it's- Not a fan of public corruption. <laughs> but the thing is, Joyce, a lot of people seem to be big proponents. They don't call it public corruption at the time. They just call it business as usual. And it seems to me we've sort of just lived through four years of very public corruption. And, and while we all wanna move on, they're the, those among us who think maybe some justice should be served, will yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, so th there's so many ways to look at this. If Donald Trump had been the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, my office would have lit him up about a year into his term, just some of the, the garden variety self-dealing, you know, getting people to use your business and spend money at your business to have access to you is sort of a classic public corruption. But two things happened, I think, in the Trump presidency. 
One is that our legal system did not fully anticipate a thoroughly corrupt president who was unashamed about violating the law and unabashed about doing it, right? We do it for as long right. as he Open, could get like, away with it. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the other thing is that there have always been slightly different rules for a president. The, the Hatch Act, the rule that prevents people mm -hmm. from engaging in um, political activity on the government's dime doesn't apply to the president. Some of the, the laws, it's ambiguous as to whether or not some of these statutes apply to a president. And of course, because the attorney generals who this president appointed were in charge of the Justice Department, maybe mm. some of this conduct didn't get as hard of a look as it would have got if, if say I was the US attorney looking at a mayor or a governor or, or even a senator in, in New Jersey, Bob Menendez was prosecuted. Right. Uh, for public corruption. So a lot of different factors came together, but I think chief among them in hindsight is this real hesitance, reticence we have to call the president a liar, a crook, a cheater, because we had never been exposed to anything like Donald Trump. And I remember early on, there was a lot of talk about he's not an experienced politician. He just doesn't understand. Um, and I never was very persuaded by that, to be honest, because I think every American knows we shouldn't let Russia interfere in our elections. But, but maybe there was some willingness to give him space to develop. Uh, and he took advantage of that, right? He just drove a truck through anything that anyone did to give him a break in any way. Yeah, that was infrastructure week for him, was just driving a truck through... And I think one of the best examples of that, right, is the day after Bob Mueller testifies in Congress. <laughs> and, you know, for anyone who hasn't read the Mueller report recently, it identifies 10 instances of obstruction of justice by Donald Trump, but says that uh, DOJ doesn't have the ability to indict. So it turns the, that evidence over to Congress. The day after Mueller testifies, Trump is on the phone with the, the brand new Ukrainian president, Zelensky, saying, you know, first I need you to do me a favor, right? I mean, impeachment comes directly on the heels of the Mueller report because he's so emboldened by, by not getting prosecuted, by not being held accountable. But here we are in a new world. And as much as, I mean, I personally have my own kind of, um, I, I go about a lot of this stuff with a lot of naivete because it sort of keeps me safe um, <laughs> mentally. And I have a sort of Christmas list of prosecutions that I would like to see, but I have a feeling that I can't have everything on my uh, prosecution Christmas list. You know, so the first thing that I'm gonna say is super unpopular and okay. it's this, we should always be at the most careful as prosecutors when we're thinking about indicting elected officials because we don't wanna be a banana republic. You know, we've just lived through um, this coup in Myanmar where the, the military goes in and arrests the, the president. We don't wanna be a country where every president lives with the expectation that as soon as she or he leaves office, they'll be indicted by the, the opposition party. If we're gonna indict a president or people around him, we need to be very clear that they're being indicted because there are crimes, 
and because there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed them. So Trump did a lot of bad things. And some mm -hmm. of that stuff, frankly, falls into the category of lawful but awful, right? It's stuff that's really <laughs> terrible. You and I know that no president should ever do this stuff, but there's not a statute that prohibits it. And, and that's you know what the rule of law is. That's our legal system. We don't lock people up because we don't like them. We indict people if they commit crimes. My personal feeling, not as a prosecutor, now private citizen, Joyce, mm -hmm. Trump has probably violated a law here or there, federal, mm -hmm. state of New York. And so my expectation is that DOJ and the New York Attorney General and maybe a couple of other folks, certainly Cy Vance in Manhattan, will take a look at each individual statute and see whether there is evidence that Trump violated that statute? Do they have admissible evidence that they can use in a courtroom to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? If so, I expect we'll see indictments. And I, I honestly think that we will in some of these cases. I th yeah, I think um, lawful but awful is my new favorite expression, first of all. Um, and it does- Advance rule one, right? We don't <laughs> indict people for lawful but awful. And that's, you know, sort of a hard pill for a lot of us you know, people who think of ourselves as our own personal justice league, you know, like I like to mm -hmm. yell at the people who don't wear masks or, you know, who park in the handicapped spot when they shouldn't, you know, a, a small, a small town justice leaguers. Put it into a larger context because we're a country that, that incarcerates too many people for too long for stuff that shouldn't be crimes. Right. Right. And, and, what we don't want to do is be a country that gives all of the benefits to rich white former politicians and mass incarcerates tons of young black men for, for relatively minor nonviolent offenses. Maybe what we can do is, is use, maybe the silver lining here is it transforms our thinking about criminal justice. And we understand that criminal codes need to be revised, that sentences need to be shortened that our prisons should look, you know, like the, the Scandinavian prisons that have great success in rehabilitating people, more like um, college campuses than warehouses. Because if you treat people like animals, they will, you know, have a hard time functioning in society when they return. So I hope that long-term maybe people will rethink and we'll be sad when Trump doesn't get prosecuted for every last thing that each of us personally thinks he should be. Hopefully there will be enough accountability that the rule of law, it, that its credibility is restored. But I hope that there's also an, a second act, which is changing and improving our criminal justice system. That to me would make it all worthwhile, right? Because what did we, what have we seen even in the past week? Kyle Rittenhouse, who was like, you know, given a you know, glass of, you know, imported French water, I'm kidding, but you know. Was it's treated. unbelievable, right? Right, treated beautifully. His bond was paid for by Ricky Schroeder, that brilliant uh, child, grown up now, actor. And he's gone walkies, as we say. You know, he's gone walkabout somewhere and we don't know where he's gone, apparently. His lawyers lied. They lied to the court on the paperwork and said that they were told to do it by investigators. It's nuts. So there's that that goes on. And we all know all the other things that have happened this year to the giant George Floyd cases that we know about to every other teeny tiny case that's happening in every other town across America yeah. to people of color. So um, if that, if that, you know, if that is what comes out of it, that would be a wonderful thing. Does our new department of justice, is, is it a, is it a brand new day in the department of justice? Do we have that hope? Um, 
Yes and no. It, so yes, I'm very optimistic about what's gonna happen at DOJ. The reason that I would say it's not a bright new day is because the career people, the same people who for the last four years in 94 US attorney's offices across the country have kept their heads down and prosecuted cases and done their best to keep the American people safe. Those folks are, are still there, still in place. They're great people. Um, mm -hmm. I talked to so many of them who struggled and thought that maybe they should leave. Yeah. And I know that like, like every, all of my other colleagues, we encourage them to stay in place, do your job. You're not political. What will change will be the leadership at the top of the department. If Lindsey Graham will ever get out of the way and permit Merrick Garland to have a hearing to be the attorney general, you know, he's managed to prevent that from happening so far. Judge Garland needs to be in place as the attorney general as quick as possible. We have a big domestic terrorism problem that's been largely ignored and downplayed mm -hmm. by Trump, you know, who thought that um, domestic terrorists, white supremacists were fine people. And so Garland needs to get in place so that he can take that fight on and, and no better person to do it. Both he and Lisa Monaco, who's been nominated to be the deputy attorney general, were involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. They understand the domestic terrorism problem. And by the same token, the number three person nominated to be the Associate Attorney General is Vanita Gupta, a mm -hmm. civil rights lawyer, provides excellent balance, you know, to make sure that as we fight domestic terrorism, we don't do things that uh, degrade the rights of American citizens, our rights to privacy and other issues like that. Again, she's someone with deep bones in domestic terrorism, perfect choices for this time. And the same thing for Kristen Clark, who will head the civil rights division. First black woman to head the civil rights division. Um, someone I admire greatly. She currently runs the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, a nationwide mm -hmm. group that, that does a lot of really impressive civil rights work. So this is a leadership team that needs to get in place yesterday. Absolutely. But they all require Senate confirmation. They all have to go through that Senate hearing. How do we move him out of the way? I think it's such a strange situation since in essence, the Senate is a jump ball uh, with uh, the vice president coming in when mm -hmm. she's needed to break any ties. And so, you know, the Republicans were resistant to turning over the committee chairmanship in the yes. Senate, which is why we have not yet started to see confirmation hearings for Justice Department folks. Uh, I think that that has just happened as of yesterday that they've reached mm -hmm. an agreement to transfer power, right. but we've not yet seen those settings for those early hearings. And, and so, I mean, I was thinking about this last night. This is so crazy, right? Trump pretended that he had not lost the election, tried to hold yeah. on to power. Republicans in the Senate, even after living through the insurrection, trying to do the same thing. These are people who fundamentally disrespect the will of American voters. And it's stunning to me that there's not more outrage. I don't know why we're not all out in the streets protesting. I don't know either. And the only consolation I have is like the leftover icing in this bowl, because that's really the only way I can sort of handle it. Because it really, I mean, personally, you know, since you're sitting here in my kitchen, I talk like you're in my kitchen. And the truth is, I find it really just baffling that they are carrying on in the same way and that you know, the Democrats so far have sort of let them. Why is the top of your cake so perfectly smooth and mine isn't? Did you use hot water or are you just really good at nope, frosting? I'm just 
you, I have an offset spatula and you have a flat spatula. Oh. And an offset spatula makes it much easier. This there little guy. <laughs> this girl, oh. this is such a trick. I'm in your debt. Is it, it's better, right? It's and perfect. As you, you can just hold it on the sides and slow and just keep it flat against the side of your cake as you turn it. And you're going to get a nice straight side too. This is life changing. Right. I'm calling my best friend as soon as we're done <laughs> to tell her this. And just, and you know, you can also kind of have fun with this frosting and you can make all sorts of shapes. I like to keep it a little flat with a nice swirl, just like a swoosh in the middle because I'm gonna start putting on all my, um, decorating it with my uh, praline crack here. For mm -hmm. anybody who's, who's not making the recipe at home, it basically we've made an amber colored um, hard caramel that um, you, it's very easy, but a little time consuming to make. Did you find it okay to make the praline? Yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was super easy. I made one batch and I put way too many pecans in it. So I made mm -hmm. a second batch this morning. I, I would say, even if you're not gonna make the cake, just make the praline so that you can eat it. Absolutely. I was thinking you make this and any leftover you have, if you aren't stuffing it in your face, or I've, I've been known to keep it around and just sort of idly chew on it, eat it. Um, you can crush it up and then it really truly becomes praline and you can add it to a frosting like this for a really lovely mm. uh, nutty sugary taste. It's great on ice cream. Yeah, I think I'm so. gonna make the kind look that's so thick with the nuts in it. You yeah. It? And just put it in boxes for my neighbors for Christmas next year. It's fabulous. So if my neighbors are listening, something to look forward to already. <laughs> exactly. You were talking about these uh, new people who are coming. And I, I like the idea of us looking forward to what is possible, how we can make, start to repair long overdue repairs on the justice system, right? But how do you go about it? Like, what is it? What is an early, I mean, off the top of your head, like what is an early first step that will get us in the right direction? Are there small move, small things you can do that move us I, forward? I think that there are. And um, ironically, because I'm an academic, I wrote an essay for the Yale Law Journal about this. I think the Justice Department can only be effective if the public has confidence in its integrity. Hmm. And in order to try to save himself, the former president did a lot of damage to the integrity of the Justice Department, the FBI, and the intelligence community. Anytime they looked at him, he bashed. So that's not fair. It doesn't reflect who the Justice Department and who the FBI and who the intel community, who they are. But I think it's incumbent upon the next batch of U.S. attorneys when they start to be confirmed to actively engage with their communities and to talk with them, you know, to say we're here essentially to, to build trust with you. You know, at DOJ, you can't talk about ongoing cases. There are restrictions on revealing grand jury. Right. You never want to identify a target because you could unfairly tarnish their reputation if they're not truly going to be prosecuted. But you can go to communities and talk about what you do and how you do it and why you do it and openly take their questions. DOJ, which never, you know, that's institutionally not who we are. Mm -hmm. I think from the attorney general down, we need to be open about what we do. We need to engage with communities. And, and here's the most important thing. You know, prosecutors should never indict cases to get statistics. 
I'm always mm -hmm. unimpressed by people who tell me, oh, I indicted more cases this month than last month. The question should always be, are you indicting the right cases? Is your community safer and better off because of the work you're doing? So that, that I think is the challenge for this leadership team, for the US attorneys, for every prosecutor across the country. You're not doing the job to advance your career. You're doing it to make your community safer. One of the most disheartening things for me over the past four years has, I mean, there've been very obvious things that, you know, you can watch and go, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Like the daily sort of transgressions that you see on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But the thing that, the thing that unnerved me the, probably the most was seeing um, people who'd worked in the state department at justice um, in, in, you know, at the FBI who, who left people who were long-term um, uh, people who had a deep understanding, not only of, uh, you know, you know, had institutional knowledge of what was supposed to be was supposed to go on in these places, and with them leaving, it it leaves you know these this vacuum for the, the wrong sort to kind of get in there. The people who want to prosecute for numbers as opposed to the right reasons. Do you think folks will come back? So my sense is that there are a lot of people who really are ready to go back and rebuild the Justice Department. And that anybody who has ever worked at DOJ, even if they're in private practice or academia, they are happy to assist in that mission. I think that there's a lot of understanding that DOJ needs to be restored and a lot of willingness to do it. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to again say something unpopular that will make me unpopular with my former colleagues at DOJ. DOJ, like the FBI, like the military, like police agencies across the country, needs to have a moment of introspection about how we look at white supremacist domestic terror groups and whether it's been too convenient to give those folks a pass because they look too much like us. And, and I think that there will need to be a moment of soul searching um, about that uh, among folks in DOJ. You know, implicit bias is real. Trump banned training on implicit bias. I was a huge fan of training on implicit bias because I think it, you know, I know it animated my hiring, right? Like I'm a white girl who went to a top 10 law school and worked in a uh, big law. And everybody who came across my desk who wanted a job with me, who looked like me, you immediately go, oh, this must be a great person. And you really have to do the training and the work to appreciate diverse backgrounds. And that was how I got some of my best prosecutors, a state prosecutor from Colorado who had family in Alabama and wanted to come home. A great guy who I spoke with earlier this week who does our violent crime stuff and is, is fabulous. I mean, you really have to commit on these issues to being anti-racist. It's um, that, that little detail of like, oh, we got rid of the implicit bias training. The, I, the, it, that just is a kind of a level of detailed evil that is just remarkable to me that um, that was time was spent thinking about that. The domestic terror laws, we don't really, so can you talk me through, I know that we don't really, can't really treat domestic terror, we don't really have the domestic terror laws that we need in this country right now. Yeah, so let me push back on that because I don't necessarily agree. For okay. starters, you have laws for two reasons. You have laws that let you investigate and laws that let you prosecute. We do have special uh, foreign terrorism statutes as a result of 9-11. And mm -hmm. some of them let you do pretty intrusive things. Um, if you're involved in foreign terrorism and if I have a, a FISA warrant 
uh, for coverage, I can uh, really get into some of your uh, most personal stuff. Domestic terrorism is not covered under those statutes, and there are some folks who think that it should be. But, but here's what I would say. As a prosecutor, mm-hmm. because there's no specific domestic terrorism statute, every law is a domestic terrorism statute. And I can and I have used things mm-hmm. as varied as the tax law, because a lot of these guys are tax evaders, um, identity theft and aggravated identity theft. A lot of these guys use bad IDs. The drug statutes, some of them fund their activity with drugs. The gun statutes are available. And so if you believe that we should have probable cause to believe someone is engaged in criminal conduct, an American citizen or someone in this country before we investigate them, then our laws are are fully adequate because I can get a warrant if I have probable cause. I can even get a wiretap. If I think that you're using your telephone to conduct domestic terrorist activity, I can go to a federal judge and if I can establish the threshold of proof I need, I can wiretap your phone for 30 days. And if it's productive, if I'm getting stuff, I can go to the judge and ask to re-up that that wiretap and keep listening to your phone calls. And, And so, you know, the goal with domestic terrorism, we want to prevent it before it happens, right? Mm-hmm. That I think is less a matter of needing new statutes and more a matter of prioritizing domestic care. It's, it's not had the priority it should have had. Okay. And, and having the will to prosecute it, you know, not to, not to look at, um, uh, you know, folks like Black Lives Matter and, and the animal rights folks, um, PETA, at, at yeah. the, on the same part of the spectrum with these white groups like the Proud Boys, um, like like Oath Keepers. These folks are in a whole different category, much more like Al-Qaeda than they are like uh, groups that go out and protest. Right, and some of them are starting up their own personal militias, which is a sort of misreading of the constitution. Isn't it illegal? You know, um, they will commit illegal acts in the course of doing that. It's a crime to have a a firearm or even ammunition. If you're a felon, a lot of these people will be a a felon after 6 Jan. Um, It's illegal to to traffic in guns without a license there. So there are a lot of provisions illegal to make a a bomb or or possess a bomb. Uh, So there's that. But, you know, what, what I think maybe we see more clearly in the South because my career is sort of a straight line trajectory from 16th Street and the KKK's activity Mm. onto a guy named Eric Robert Rudolph, who uh, I I was on the team that investigated what was an abortion clinic bombing in Birmingham where a police officer was murdered, but also the Olympic Park bombing and two other bombings in Atlanta, all conducted by a guy who was a member of a Christian identity group. And then, you know, we, we see as the KKK gets sued by the Southern Poverty Law Center and forced out of, out of business because they were a business, then we have new groups forming like League of the South and Sovereign Citizens involved in the murder of a couple of police officers in, in Memphis. And now we have these newer groups. The Proud Boys aren't something new. They're an evolution of these old white domestic terrorist groups. We need to call them what they are and prioritize their prosecution. Sorry, I'll get and off my soapbox. No, no, I, I like you on your soapbox. I think it's an important place. I think it's an important place for you to be uh, because it, it, it sheds a lot of light on, yeah, I think a lot of us um, are tired. I mean, when I say us, I mean like your average, like the usual gang of idiots, like we used to say at Mad The Maddie real King, America. You know? <laughs> the real America. <laughs> the real America. I'm not in a diner, but I am a real American and who have been watching and are sort of chomping at the bit to see stuff happen. But what you're saying to me is the law in a sense, or prosecutions kind of 
seemed to me a sort of a beautiful puzzle or a very interesting puzzle, right? Where you're like, I have this and I want to reach it. How do I get there? It's not fast. Right. And that's it always the, looks think, easy from the outside, you know, but it, it's not. I mean, when you're the prosecutor who has to go to a grand jury and take them an indictment and put on evidence and ask them to indict another human being and run the risk that that person is going to be taken away from their family and locked up. Mm -hmm. If you're a good prosecutor, you don't engage in a rush to justice. And even if you know the public is going to criticize you for being slow, you have an obligation to be fair, even to people who've committed heinous acts. And, and that is tough because sometimes that, and, and we, we've all lived through that for four years. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it means people get away with bad stuff. Other times it means that justice is slow. And we all know that justice delayed can be tantamount to justice denied. But, but in our system, we think it's better to let guilty people go free than to incarcerate innocent people. That's the bias in our criminal justice system is to protect individual rights. We would not be the country that, that I grew up in, the country that I think we all enjoy living in, if we didn't just double down on that commitment, but take on the obligation to extend it to Americans for whom it's absent, right? The George Floyds of the world, the Breonna Taylors of the world. I mean, that is, that is I think our job. It's not to demand fast justice, in the Trump case, justice is coming. Our job is to, man ju to demand justice for all Americans and particularly for people who don't have voices, people who aren't wealthy, people of color. So what you were saying before about the um, prosecutors and um, the Department of Justice on all the different levels throughout the United States really need to start talking to communities. This is the message to deliver. I think that that's right. I mean. Merrick Garland will have to get in place. I hope that this will be his message. Every attorney general crafts their message differently. I am maybe on the progressive end of the spectrum for prosecutors, mm -hmm. uh, but I really believe in this vision of the Justice Department as, as operating a three-legged stool. We're not just about prosecuting people. One leg is preventing crime, one leg is prosecutions, and one leg is, is helping people who've been in prison successfully re-enter their communities so you don't have recidivism. And you gotta get all three legs of that stool in whack, right? If they're uneven, the stool's not stable. If you commit to, to crime prevention, to criminal justice reform, to social justice, to eradicating racial inequity in the system, we could have a criminal justice system that would keep Americans safer, cost a lot less money and that would do the right thing for people. That's where I hope this Justice Department will land. That's a, a reasonably, um, in a, an easily digestible message. And uh, I, I hope it does get shared out there. Just to take a little, I know I've, I've, I feel much calmer talking to you. I feel a little more um, like my uh, high run emotions that I've that have come off of the Trump administration, and I'm like, yeah, I want them all locked up. I want to see, you know, when my mother was very, my mother used to um, spend a lot of time in front of MSNBC uh, at the end of her you know, for most of her life. She was always obviously very. I mean, if you met my brother, you know, very kind of politically aware and very um, knowledgeable on all these things. And she watched MSNBC like nobody's business and would just sit there. Everyone it. should. <laughs> <laughs> and she spent a lot of years um, ranting at the TV 
in her later years talking back and would get very wound up. And I'd call her at night, maybe around nine, nine thirty at night after my dad passed away. So, you know, she'd have a voice before she, you know, I, so we sort of tuck each other into bed sort of thing. And she'd be like, Oh, this happened. And then Rachel Maddow was talking about this and Oh my God. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, now what I want you to imagine is instead of sheep jumping over fences, I'd like you to imagine all the bad people in the Trump administration in orange jumpsuits in a bit of a <laughs> chain gang. And you can count those going to sleep. And um, you know, there's Rudy Giuliani in an orange jumpsuit. There's Donald Trump, then you see Jer. And so, uh, you know, this was a one um, way of soothing your way to sleep. But what you're saying to me is uh, I should put that aside and focus maybe on cake baking and justice reform as a way I, of going I forward. Think that's right. You know, we want justice, not violence. There's a great um, opinion piece in the Boston Globe yesterday by a federal district court judge in Boston, uh, Leo Sorokin. And he talks about how he uses restorative justice in his courtroom. And, and, you know, he is still following federal law and sending people to prison, but he's also creating space for perpetrators and victims to speak to each other. And he talks about how impressed he is by the mom who is ultimately willing to sit down um, with the guys who murdered her child and talk with them so that they can, on a, on a very cellular level, understand her pain and she learns a little bit about them too. Um, not every problem that happens in our community should be redressed by the justice system, right? I mean, a great mm -hmm. example is addiction. Addicts probably are better addressed in public health than, than in criminal justice. But maybe it's, maybe, you know, we could have a national moment where we think about who we want to be. That's probably asking a lot right now. We're a, a very separated, very stratified country. But maybe that should be our long-term goal to seek justice, not vengeance. I think on that note, we should have a slice of cake. One of the most shocking things I experienced as I, I headed from my parents' house into the world is the rest of the world cuts their slices of cake very small. And in my house, that. no, my house was like, there are five of us and everyone, I mean, there was not a lot of cake left. We like you cut a piece and you cut it into quarters and then you cut you got eight slices out of a cake and you go to other people's houses and they'd have like a 16th of a cake. I didn't understand that. You know, in my house, chicken soup doesn't even make it overnight. I made chicken soup for dinner. We all <laughs> ate it. And I said something about eating it for lunch. And my husband sort of looked at me sheepishly <laughs> and said, well, you know, I had the rest for breakfast. Um, cake does not last long here. Do you make a lot of cakes in your world? How do you, you relax know, from your high pressure existence? I used to make a lot of cakes. I've been at, well, I had rotator cuff surgery, so I have not done a whole lot of baking. But the mm -hmm. cool thing about having rotator cuff surgery is I've had to have one of the kids in the kitchen with me as a sous chef <laughs> really to be able to do much. So it's been more like brownie sort of baking lately. Very good. Uh, do you They'll do be super brownies? happy to see a real cake. Do you do brownies from scratch or do you take the Mary Trump approach of boxed brownies? I do the recipe on the Giardelli um, mm. powdered chocolate, but I add Kahlua. I add two tablespoons of Kahlua to it. Well, well, It's really well. outrageous. No brownies should be made without Kahlua in them. Well, you know, 
as the child of a scientist, there's really only one way for me to confirm that is by trying it. I'm I'd also like you, to point really good. Just just add like a like a coffee creamy richness or just a gooiness or what happens? You actually don't taste it. But there's just some ineffable difference. And I have like run out of Kahlua and not had it and made the brownies anyhow. And everybody sort of goes, man, these aren't, these aren't brownies. <laughs> these aren't good. I also make a killer bread pudding um, <gasps> with almond extract in it using the brioche from Whole Foods. And so those have been, you know, sort of my two very pedestrian go-tos in the post-op period. So you, so you make like your, the kind of the custard, the egg and the, um, milk and add almond extract to that. It's unbelievably good. Do you ever and add that brioche or- bread is just the best thing for bread pudding. Oh. Yeah, we're luck- lucky enough to have um, get the brioche bread from uh, Baltazar Bakery, which is oh. up in. Yeah, sorry. I mean, there, <laughs> there has to be. So- you know, I live in a suburb in New Jersey, so there has to be something aside from like free pharmaceuticals in the water supply. You know. <laughs> I confess um, we have had to mail order Zabars a couple of times this year. It's been Every one once of those in a years. while. You nothing just need bagels, right? <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I learned to make my own bagels in this time. And wow. Yeah, it's a fun project. It really is a fun project. Um, the boiling and the baking. It was a little more satisfying, I will say, making soft pretzels. And if you wanted a a plan something to do this weekend while the Super Bowl is on making your own soft pretzels is really worth it you may have motivated me to try bagels they've always sort of scared me off well try um try the soft pretzels first and when that works for you you'll be like oh I can do this um you know yesterday I was watching the MSNBC network which is what I do every day and I learned that it was Nicole Wallace's birthday so maybe you should dedicate your cake to her you know, um, unfortunately for Nicole, she's in New York, so she's not getting any of my cake. All right. Well, I mean, but I'll, I'll send her a picture. <laughs> <laughs> send her a picture. Um, can I ask you just one more vaguely um, serious question that you don't have to answer seriously because it's almost you, too much? You can, but first you have to look at my cake and tell me okay, that show it's me. gorgeous. Is I'm this not unbelievable? Oh, and you did the sides. It's beautiful. It is. I'm in love with this cake. Oh my God. Maybe maybe you should try it, but you should photograph it first and then you should. I will. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. You had a serious question and I just wanted to talk about cake. No, no. To be fair, after I asked this question, I really want to go back to talking about cake. This morning on, on the Twitter, uh, there was a woman named Marjorie (laughs) Taylor Green. Um, skipping and dancing all over Twitter, like, I don't know, like an evil Eloise kind of taunting us with, well, oh, there's I an image. <laughs> it's not fair to Eloise, but no, um, but it's the perfect image, right? Skipping and hopping around Congress going, I don't have, I have so much free time. I don't, you don't know what I'm going to do. Is there a, any case against a person like that? Is there, will, can people like Ted Cruz be brought to some sort of justice? Will the rioters be brought to some sort of justice? So, so let's talk about the evil Eloise. There is accountability for people like that. And if we learned one thing from the Donald Trump years, it's that accountability comes at the ballot box. That's why Trump fought so hard to steal these elections because he knew that the voters would do 
what the criminal justice system and Congress had failed to do, that they would hold him accountable. In 2018, when voters returned to Democratic House, they were holding Trump accountable. So I don't think that the story here is Marjorie Green Taylor or whatever her name is. I'm not committed to <laughs> learning her name. I'm not really committed to paying attention to her or any of her poorly informed foolishness. You know, people who are, are uninformed or dangerous and she's dangerous in that sense. To me, the story is the Republican party that tolerates her. The Republican party that wouldn't remove her like they removed Representative King a few years ago for, for less horrible conduct. Because let's be clear, no matter what she says today, no matter what her faux apology consisted of, this is a woman who has called for elected officials in our government to be killed, who has posed with some sort of semi-automatic weapon in front of pictures of women of color who are elected officials in our Congress. So she's somebody who I hope prosecutors will take a good hard look at. We all have first amendment rights. Her conduct may not mm -hmm. have crossed the line. Ultimately, it is the job of voters to turn her out. So I hope that the voters in Georgia uh, will do that. I hope that they'll get support from people across the country to do that. I see that there are already people talking about gearing up to challenge her. Mm -hmm. um, this myth that the South is Republican territory was shattered by Stacey Abrams and by women like Latasha Brown who fight for the vote. And here's the truth. What's gone on in the South and in other parts of the country is voter suppression. Efforts that have been successful, that have been targeted at Democratic voters, largely people of color, but also elderly people, people in rural communities, um, people that, that Republicans who control state legislatures think will vote Democratic, and they've made it hard for those people to vote. In, in Alabama, there is a systemic effort to make it tough for people to vote. There's only one day of voting. So if you're a single mom with two kids at home and you gotta go to work to make money to keep food on the table, it's a hard choice, right? Do I feed my kids or do I vote? Um, you see people making those choices all the time. There's a, there was a horrible story in 16 about a vet who was in his 90s, a veteran who had never missed voting in an election. But Alabama had a new ID law and he was 92. He didn't have a stinking driver's license. So they turned him away at the polls. In 2018, I helped a man who had walked across the bridge in Selma, whose voter registration had been rejected the last time he had had to vote. And we actually um, had to get a young woman who was on the ground in Selma to, to go to the polls with him to make sure he could vote in 2018. You know, People sometimes say, oh, why shouldn't you have to have an ID to vote? And it might look that way on the surface. We used to, when we went to grocery stores, use um, driver's licenses to cash checks or stuff like that. The people who are the most at risk of being marginalized are the people whose votes are the most suppressed. So I feel like I'm yet again on my soapbox. You, you seem to bring this out in me, but, um, or maybe it's just baking. I'm comfortable. I have coffee and I have a huge cake here. Look, voting is the most important thing we do in this country. It's our most important right um, as a constitutional republic. Trump knew that and he's trying to strip that right to vote from us. The answer to Marjorie Greene Taylor is to make her a former representative in Congress um, in 2022. Uh, well said. And also those Republicans, the 9,012, I mean, there's like 155 Republicans who supported her yesterday, who stood up and gave her a standing ovation, 
And there's the like story, to... right? She's not the story. That's who no. we should focus on is the Republicans who are still tolerating and enabling this. And the, the um, election ads against them have sort of written themselves, right? You know, so you supported a woman who what? Um, and hopefully that's, that's us, you know, we, we get that option to vote against those people. Yes. That's going to be a lot of work, though. I mean, I don't I don't think we can make light of it. You know, we've just been through this election where there were these fake narratives that just weren't true that drove thousands of voters. The the I, I saw and I can't remember the number now. It was like 17 percent of Americans believe that their Democrats run sex rings and are pedophiles. And it's like, no, this just isn't true. You can't believe this. Yeah, I, I don't know how we get around that those arguments either, right? It's um, going to take a lot of hard work. I think we are going to have to all commit um, to civics education in some shape or form. Well, I hope you enjoy this cake. And um, I thank you so much for coming into my kitchen and doing the next best thing to therapy, which is calming me down a little about the future and um, restructuring how I think about uh, justice going forward um, with a little bit of hope about what we can do in the future um, with education and the Justice Department. You know, <laughs> I have never been as excited about doing a podcast as I was. I mean, I think it took me five seconds to respond and say, yes, please, when can I do this podcast? I'm going to be a lifelong fan. I hope you're going to do this forever because politics and baking, I think that's just what we all need right now. It's the, it's, I think it's a, uh, thank you very much. I think it's a great way to sort of push ourselves towards more pleasant times, more pleasant thoughts. Uh, if we can bake, keep our hands busy, and then there's something nice at the end. I hope you enjoy it. And I thank you so much for coming on and Thanks let me know how the cake, me. I hope it's a big hit with your family. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed the secret life of cookies. A big, big thank you to Joyce Vance for baking along with me today and making me feel a lot more hopeful about the future. My recipe for the pecan coffee cake can be found on my website at marissarothkopf.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Marissa Rothkopf. And if you will be so kind, please leave a review in the Apple Store. Stay safe and talk to you again next week.